G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. It is an important conversation today uh, because sometimes uh, some people might point the finger at you and I in our conversations and uh, sometimes the things we're talking about are so drastic, uh, so uh, almost unbelievable when we talk about the persecution of Christian believers that it could lead us uh, to be seen as uh, somehow or other having a lack of love for Muslim believe, uh, Muslim people around the world. Uh, this is a, an interesting situation because at, at, at one point you've got to highlight the biggest challenges uh, that Christian churches and Christian believers face around the world and bring a balance there as to how we actually reach out to people in the Muslim world. Uh, you've written a significant article of recent times, Why We Must Be Reaching Muslims with the Gospel. Let me, just as we get under our conversation underway today, let me ask you about that word must, because it's an imperative, isn't it? Uh, we oh, must absolutely. reach out. Yes, definitely. Well, this uh, <clears throat> that article, which is uh, on my Religious Liberty Monitoring blog, uh, uh, comes from a, um, an address I gave to the CMS conference, the Church Missionary Society conference, somewhere under the sun here in Melbourne. And the subject, it was the stream for reaching Muslims. And I explained to them, you know, reaching Muslims as in the practicalities of evangelism is not my forte, but I uh, have a lot, a lot to say about why we must, why it's urgent that we must be reaching Muslims with the gospel. And one of the main reasons is precisely because of the problem of persecution. Uh, Islam, uh, so many Muslims are persecuting Muslims, uh, claiming to be motivated by Islam, that we must be addressing this subject and we must be witnessing to Muslims. Uh, otherwise, you know, where, where is this all going to end? And the problem is, you see, there are people who say Islam is not a problem and that groups like Boko Haram or, in, or Islamic State, there's some sort of deviant group that has nothing to do with Islam. But, uh, and they say it's unloving to suggest that Islam is actually a problem. But my point in this address is that we need to be able to dialogue with Islam and converse with Islam, but the truth has to be on the table. The truth that, that, that Muslims are persecuting Christians and they're motivated by the Quran, they're motivated by Islamic history and the life of Muhammad. And we can talk honestly about this. We can confront Islam. We can talk about persecution and still love Muslims and be desiring to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The two things are not, uh, are sep they're not separate. We can do both and we can do both precisely because we are a people of grace. So that is that was the uh, the theme of what I had to say at that conference. And I know there'll be listeners interested in perhaps making their comment uh, on that. Can we, in fact, hold 
the Muslim community to account and at the same time say we love you in the name of Jesus Christ and we have this message of the gospel. You might like to be a participant in our conversation today. Our talkback line is open, 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth, as I was talking about our conversation coming up, I I used a quote that uh, that you made of Samuel Zwema, who was also known as the Apostle to Islam, who lamented, one might suppose, the Church thought the Great Commission didn't apply to Muslims. Uh, of course, uh, the Great Commission applies to all peoples, doesn't it? It does, and the reason why Samuel Zwema l- made that lament, uh, you know, was because only 1%, and this was uh, sort of just, uh, you know, multiple decades ago, but things haven't changed. Only 1% of, of missionaries were going to the Muslim world and witnessing to Muslims. And when you think of what an opportunity has been missed, because uh, during the 20th century, you know, Islam was at its weakest point after World War I. Uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, was broken up. Uh, the Caliphate was disbanded and dissolved in 1924. Uh, The Arab lands were broken up and put under Western mandates, which was a betrayal of of the Arab people. But it it could all happen because Islam was so weak. And at that time, too, Muslims started experimenting with other things. They started saying, well, Islam hasn't been, you know, uh, our great saviour for the nations. Let's try nationalism and socialism. And they tried all these other forms of governance But nothing, and despotism, of course, they had despots in power, and nothing has really worked for the Islamic community. And it's only been in recent decades that they've turned around and said, okay, they've accepted Islam is the solution, the cry of the Muslim Brotherhood. But through that time when Islam was weak, we were only sending 1% of missionaries to the Muslim world at a time when they could have gone probably with much more safety than what they can now. And now it's almost impossible. Um, It's very difficult. Um, The greatest uh, work we can do, really, with witnessing to Muslims now is in our own communities, where we still have a high degree of of security, we have religious freedom, and then we anticipate that, that the Muslims that we reach for Christ in Australia will witness to their friends and relatives back in their homelands. But, you know, you look at the 20th century and you think 1% of missionaries went to the Muslim world. What a waste of an opportunity. So he was lamenting that. And, of course, I want you to reflect, too, on that time of weakness because, as you say in your article, uh, that weakness is not a weakness that's always been there because for a thousand years there was an advancing Islam across the known world. And, uh, and and I'm interested in your thoughts on how the weakness actually eventuated because I think Christian witness has something to do with that. Yes, well, that's exactly right. People have completely forgotten that for a thousand years Islam was the strongest force on the planet. Um, and actually managed to conquer three quarters of the Christian world, uh, which is huge. It gobbled up three quarters of the Christian world, right across North Africa and into Spain and onto the edge of France, right up through the Holy Land, into Persia, 
all that part of uh, or that was the heartland of the early Christian church in, in the Eastern Church uh, in, from Edessa and all through Upper Mesopotamia that was the, the heartbeat of the early church from where missions really eventuated. And then it spread further through the Turks mainly, right around into the Balkans, right up to the gates of Vienna, where it was finally stopped in its tracks in, 16, in the 1680s. And it was stopped in its tracks because of the rise of Christianity, the Reformation in Europe. Uh, the Reformation had brought incredible change to Europe and enabled Europe to rise and come out of its, its um, you know, it, it, its backwardness and rise and become a great industrial uh, power that was wealthy and industrialized and advancing across the globe and it pushed Islam right back until World War One, when it was finally uh, the Ottoman Empire was uh, was uh, smashed and the Caliphate was was dissolved, and then of course in World War Two it was the Arabs that allied with the Nazis. So again, Islam uh, through World War Two received another really desperate body blow, and uh, I think a lot of people just sat back and thought, well, Islam's on its way out. Islam is going to die. We can ignore it. But, of course, that's not what happened because all the while there were Islamic reformers were at work, uh, you know, building up uh, a body of resistance that eventually uh, burst, burst forth in, the 19, in 1979 with Islamic revolution, both in Tehran, in Iran, where it was successful, but also in Mecca, in Saudi Arabia, where it was put down. So um, Islam is back and a lot of the things that we're seeing in Islam today, uh, we're shocked at it because we haven't seen it in our lifetime, because we've been brought up through an era where Islam was weak. But if you go back to the era where Islam was strong, even just pre-World War One, the things that Islam is doing today, the slavery, the ethnic cleansing, the taking of women as war booty, that, that was practiced for a thousand years right through uh, the strength of, Is when, uh, strength of Islam. And it was practiced because the Quran gives them permission to do it. And the Quran gives the jihadis permission to take the women uh, as war booty and things like this. So those things were put down when Islam was weak, but they are coming back everywhere Islam is strong. And that's what people need to realize. This is not just some sort of um, divergent cult. This is uh, traditional, historic, strong Islam asserting itself. Well, it is a conversation. Who knows where we could go today? You have the opportunity to participate. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Should Christians be reaching out to Muslims with love and the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's the mood in your church? What are the risks involved? That's a big question. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, our guest. Let's hear from Afra, who is in Brisbane. Hello, Afra. Welcome along to 2020. Afra, are you with us? Yeah. Afra, what's your thoughts on the conversation we're having today? Hi. Um, well, I grew up in a um, Muslim family and 
all my life, I've grown up in the Middle East. My mom is from Iran. My dad's from Oman. And I grew up in a Muslim family. Until today, they're all Muslims. And I came to Australia as a student to study. And through my peers, through my Christian friends, I mean, I became best friends with a Christian girl. Being out of home, out of that tradition and the, just the, I guess, teachings of Islam and the way of life with all around Islam, everything we did from the way you woke up, the way you ate, the way you spoke to your neighbor had everything to do with the Quran. To come into a place where the Quran had no significance, even in, its, in the laws and nothing, it was scary for me. And the people that opened up to me the most were my Christian friends. And eventually, five years later, I get invited to church. And to me, doubting your faith or even accepting anything from a Christian was a sin in Islam. I was taught that. You don't even open your heart to that at all, because that's doubting Allah. That's a sin. So I shut people off. There was a point where you can't come past that. But my Christian friends didn't stop. They just, they didn't Bible bash me or say, you know, this is what the Bible says and you're wrong. Instead, they just showed me love and compassion and just love and love. And one day I opened up and I said, all right, you know what? I'll come to church with you. And they weren't even asking that day. And I went to church and just that first service, I gave my life to Jesus. I knew this is the truth. There was no fear. There was no, um, just, Nothing forced on you. It was just love. Afra, some, let me ask yes. you, how do you feel about the idea that when we hear so many dreadful things about Islam, uh, that sometimes Christians might be even fearful uh, to actually approach someone like you were and uh, to open a conversation and to befriend you and to, and to invite you to church and to invite you to have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, how do you feel about that sort of fear that might be there in the community? Yes, I felt a big amount of fear, and I hung out a lot with um, Muslim friends. And if we would go around, like just in Brisbane, people would just you know, try to back away or treat us as if we were you know, um, going to hurt somebody. And some of my Muslim friends loved that. They loved the fact that they were feared. They felt like, okay, well, at least if they're not going to be friends with us, at least they fear us. At least we have some sort of power. You know, to me, I didn't like that. And when once I saw the truth, once I came out of that into the truth, I managed to try to speak to those friends before. And they started to realize that that negative image that they're having, that others are having of them, it started to really impact them in their studies, started to impact them in every way of life. And now all they've wanted to do now it's just become friends to just show people that, hey, we, we can be approached. Let's hear from Elizabeth Kendall. Elizabeth, what are your feelings and thoughts on what Afra is sharing? I am just so pleased that you phoned in Afra and gave your testimony on the radio. That is, uh, to me, that's made my day, and I think it will probably be a wonderful thing for so many people to hear. You know, God is doing the most amazing work amongst Iranians uh, in, in the, in the uh, diaspora and also in Iran. Uh, we're hearing about so many Iranians, uh, Persians, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And, you know, some, someone has said to me, people have said to me, oh, it's, it's so risky, though, you know, sharing your faith with, with Muslims. Well, it's not very risky here in Australia. Um, it's not very risky at all, not like it might be in, if you were in Iran. Uh, it's risky there, and people are risking their lives to do it. 
Here in Australia, it's not terribly risky at all. And not only that, here in Australia, uh, Iranians and Arabs and others are, for the first time in their lives, they actually have a freedom to hear the gospel and to make a decision for themselves without that whole repressive apparatus around them. Uh, this is a time when we really must be sharing our faith uh, just freely. Christians need to just be freely being Christians with their Muslim friends and neighbours. There's a verse I love in uh, in the book of Jonah, uh, when Jonah is, you know, told by God to go to Nineveh and speak to, you know, his great enemy in, in Nineveh. And he says, no, no, no. And, you know, the story, he, he uh, ends up being swallowed by the fish and there he gets on his knees in the belly of the great fish and he prays a prayer of repentance. And he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And I think we Australians often cling to this sense of separateness and, and uh, security and we like our comfortable lifestyles. And so we don't go out and witness. We don't open up to our Muslim friends and neighbours. And in doing so, we forfeit that wonderful grace, that opportunity to see our Muslim friends and neighbours actually coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, when I spoke at Summer Under the Sun, I had a whole lot of examples of, you know, really simple cases of, uh, of a nurse giving a Farsi New Testament to an Iranian Muslim who'd just been told that they were terminally ill in hospital. And this Muslim uh, read the New Testament while he was in hospital and decided that he was so fascinated with Jesus that he spoke to his wife and he said, maybe we should, uh, we should pray to Jesus. And they prayed to Jesus and, and a healing began to the point that he lived. Uh, and he still has a tumour, but it's not, it's not going to kill him. It stopped growing. It started shrinking. And uh, he and his whole family were recently baptised because a nurse took a risk and, uh, and shared the gospel. So I'm just so pleased that you rang, Afra. I'm, I'm just delighted to have heard your testimony. Afra. Thank you so much. And I'm so grateful to hear what you are doing and the message that you are bringing out to everybody out here. Yeah. Because what I sincerely believe is that when you take them out of their comfort zone and you bring them, even invite them into your home, and just love on them, yes. that, that freedom, that love that you have, they want that. Muslims yes. want that. Like, what, what is that you have, this peace that you have? Because in Islam, it's all about judgment. It's all about God's going to judge you. And if you do this, you're judged. And there's just so much fear. But when they come out and see you and your love and your just peace, they want that. Yes. I wanted that. Afra, let me ask you, while I've got you on the phone uh, and while we're talking through this conversation, uh, you've talked about your testimony, how your friends didn't hold back in sharing the gospel and their love with you. But is it different for women to what it might be like for men? Uh, is there any sort of comment or can you give us any insight into uh, whether Muslim men are, are just as open as perhaps as you were? I would say it would be a bit harder for men because my family, my parents and my siblings are still Muslims and my parents still don't know that I've come to Christ two years ago. It's just my siblings that do and they beg me not to tell my mom and dad because that would that would lead to a lot of pretty much chaos and I would be blacklisted from returning home. So 
at the moment, my parents don't know. And my brothers, as open as they are to the fact that, okay, our sister has now accepted a new religion. Well, it's a faith, not a religion, is what I've been trying to explain to them. My brothers are very shut off with me trying to even talk to them about it. However, my sister is so much open to listening to me and praying with me, like holding hands and, hey, let's pray. But with the male, I believe Islam says that, like, if your daughter is, let's say, to move faith or do a certain sin, it's the dad who's believed will go to hell. And then if your mm-hmm. wife does so-and-so, the male is a head figure in Islam. And to them, it, it puts even more pressure on the male that they pressure. completely shut it off. Well, Afra, I just want to thank you so much for your contribution today on 2020. It's, uh, it's refreshing and it's insightful and it's scary at the same time. Uh, but uh, just to know that uh, you have that wonderful testimony, how you've responded to the love of Christ and uh, that you are seeing these things in your life uh, clearly uh, in light of uh, the truth and this gospel message uh, of Jesus. Afro, I just want to thank you so much for being part of 2020 today. Thank you so much. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. And an important conversation today, why we must be reaching Muslims with the gospel. Elizabeth Kendall, our guest, religious liberty analyst, talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call, Elizabeth. This time, uh, John is in Coburg in Victoria. Hello, John. Welcome along to 2020. John, are you with us? Yes, I am. Yes. How are you? I'm um, well, thanks, John. Uh, what's You're your... doing a wonderful job there, bro. Thank you very much. What's... And I just want to say, Elizabeth, she's an anointed lady. She's, um, you know, an inspiration to this our society and that we desperately need people like her in Australia that, um, you know, are light and salt. We do. And in so, this world, you know. Yep. John, why must we reach Muslims with the gospel? Well, well I guess if we don't reach them, they're going to reach us with the sword. So, I mean, I don't think we've got much of a choice. I mean, obviously, you know, you can, we can see for our eyes and we can see what's going on. I mean, they're quick to get the baseball bat and whack it over people's heads. And, you know, there's definitely uh, um, a big reasons why we need to, you know, reach them. Because I think indirectly, um, this is my, um, my opinion, I think in a sense, you know, it's the enemies coming into the West um, through these people and... Um, not that they are our enemy, but they, you know, when we live in an immoral, you know, it makes us very weak as a society, and they become stronger. I think it's our own, partly our fault because the West has, you know, walked away from God, walked away from morality, and it's weakened us. And these people get stronger. So in a sense, I think it's, you know, it's our um, we're chasing money, we're chasing pleasure, sex, you know, material, the good life. Um, you try to talk to most Aussies about, you know, Jesus and God, and they just say, oh, I don't need it. I've got the good welfare, good lifestyle here. I've got a speedboat. I don't pay me taxes. I'll give me a speedboat. I've John, got... I know that Elizabeth's going to want to uh, have a comment on what you're saying. Elizabeth, uh, what are your thoughts on what John's sharing? Oh, I think John has really hit the nail right on the head here. <clears throat> and uh, this is one of the things that's so... Uh, well, it's just routinely overlooked by both media and politicians. Um, uh, Western civilization has basically uh, abandoned its own roots, uh, its own foundations. 
So you've got a, a culture, Western civilization, that has grown up really as a Christian culture, particularly post-Reformation, um, uh, and, and now, and created this wonderful culture uh, that where there is freedom and dynamism, and now what's happened is they're denying their own foundation. So it's just like someone coming along and cutting the roots away from the tree and wondering why it's no longer green, or why someone comes along and, and takes a, a uh, you know a jackhammer to the foundations and wonders why the building starts to collapse. And what Western civilization has done, uh, they think it's evolution. They think that it, that we've progressed and we've evolved beyond the need for religion. And what they're doing is they're, they're getting rid of it. And they've adopted uh, what's known as cultural Marxism, which uh, the truth, the uh, the teachings of cultural Marxism are moral relativism. Right? There's no right and wrong with morals you all choose your own and cultural relativism all cultures are the same and of course the 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 gay lobby comes in and exploits our moral relativism and says okay if all lifestyles are the same except ours and likewise with cultural relativism where where we refuse to say that christian culture has any value beyond any other culture um you've got uh, the Islamic uh, fundamentalist radicals coming in and exploiting that vacuum. So we've created, or those who have uh, knocked out our foundations and cut away our roots have created this incredible instability and these huge vacuums that the Muslim community is able to then exploit. And say so they say, we can offer you morals. We can offer you a moral compass. We can offer you direction and stability. And at the same time, because we're on the edge of this cultural collapse, our political leaders are doing everything they can to try and keep society together so it's not all going to fall apart or dissolve into chaos. And they do that by becoming more and more authoritarian. And uh, they silence people who they think might cause division. And they give and they appease those who are belligerent. And this is what's happening in Western society. And I think that the most important thing that could happen for Western civilization is that there is a revival in the church, a real revival in the church, so that Christians uh, start to speak. They speak with that boldness, you know, that Peter uh, erupted with after Pentecost, after the, the Holy Spirit came upon them, speaking with boldness and to see changes in community that uh, will bring uh, the Christian gospel back into our society. So uh, well done, John. I think that it really hits the nail on the head. John from Coburg, thanks so much for your input today. Let's take another call from Newitt in Adelaide. Hello, Newitt. Welcome along. Oh, we've lost Newitt. It's good to have you along with us. Our topic of conversation this hour on 2020, why we must be reaching Muslims with the gospel. Elizabeth Kendall, our guest, religious liberty analyst. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, we'll take another call in just a moment. Let me just ask you about some of the points that have come out. Uh, we're talking about the weakening of the Christian West and at the same time a strengthening of the Islamic world. 
And uh, I know in your article that we're talking about today, uh, you talk about a 35-year program where Islam has been strengthening around the world. And it strikes me as though there might be a direct correlation between the two, the weakening of the West, the strengthening of Islam, and all of a sudden there's a huge threat. Uh, well, yes, I'd say, and I'd say that the West has actually been in decline for about 250 years, probably since uh, the Enlightenment, when when uh, it became very increasingly acceptable for people to uh, to um, oh, negate God and, and to say that science is the answer to everything. Science is going to be the save, you know, the saviour of the world and the saviour of society. And I think since then there's been a gradual uh, decline of faith in the West and a decline of, of the West completely. And, of course, it, it really culminated in uh, the world wars in Europe where we see you know, the Nazis and, and others all a symbol of the de- a complete loss of Christian focus from the West. Um, so we've seen that. And also sit right since at that same time there has been an Islamic Reformation movement and I'd say that Islamic Reformation movement really came into its, uh, into its fullness uh, in 1979 with those Islamic revolutions. Now, with the, um, with the Islamic uprising in Mecca, uh, what happened there was um, uh, jihadists took over the Grand Mosque of Mecca and most Muslims in, in Saudi Arabia and Mecca were very sympathetic. In fact, even the clerics were sympathetic to the to the uh, revolutionaries. So what the Saudi royal family had to do in order to bring foreign troops into Mecca to put down the, the uprising was they had to get a fatwa from the clerics. And the clerics said, OK, we're going to make you pay for this fatwa. We will give you a fatwa allowing you to bring in foreign troops to put down the uprising if you uh, make a promise that, you know, oil money, the petrodollars will come to us to enable us, the clerics, to, to propagate our Wahhabi fundamentalist Islam uh, worldwide. So essentially, while the revolution was put down, all the aims and objectives of the revolution were embraced by the clerics, everything except the actual removal of the sword, the House of Sword. Now, ever since then, the Saudi clerics have had free range and as much money as they want to propagate Wahhabi Islam worldwide. So that's been going on for 35 years. That's a long time. It is. A whole generation of Muslims have risen up now completely schooled and influenced by Wahhabi Islam. We are far, far behind the game here. Well, we are inviting listener input into our conversation today. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316, talking about should Christians be reaching out to Muslims with love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's hear from Eddie in the Torres Strait. And, of course, uh, more than 600 uh, centres right around Australia, including Torres Strait. Hello, Eddie. Welcome along to 2020. Eddie, are you with us? Yes. Eddie, what is your contribution to our conversation today from the Torres Strait? Um, I, I believe we, we need to reach out to the to the Muslim families um, because um, I think they are part of the wider community that mm. you know we have been commissioned to um, minister to, and I believe that like the same principles that we 
that we minister and apply to other other members in our community, you know, needs to be applied also to the families, you know, of the Muslim community. Eddie, absolutely. I'll just I'll get uh, Elizabeth's uh, thoughts on the thought, things that you're sharing there, Elizabeth. Oh, absolutely, and I think that. One of the big issue is that there is such a uh, a lot of pressure coming on the church at the moment not to witness at all. So the, the principle of Christian witness is actually uh, profoundly under attack. Um, there's now mainly because of this whole concept of cultural relativism. Uh, we're now living in a day where it's increasingly becoming the case that Christian witness is being deemed culturally insensitive. Mm. and offensive so it's now we're now being told it's offensive to witness to hindus it's offensive uh to witness to muslims um and it's offensive to even suggest that islam uh, might be a problem for those muslims or for our society so christian witness as a whole is actually coming under attack even from the united nations which has already passed a uh, a motion back in 2005 uh, to uh, to investigate this and to see if our religion, our human rights organ, our human rights treaties rather, should be amended uh, to reflect, you know, this new reality that Hindu and Muslim communities no longer accept Christian witness. And the thing that mm. makes me really angry is, it's not the communities that that reject Christian witness; it's the leaders of those communities. So those who want to maintain power over, uh, over these uh, immigrant or uh, minority communities, they're the ones who object to Christian witness, not the actual communities themselves. Eddie, let me ask you, you're in the Torres Strait. Yes. Uh, which are you on one of the islands? Whereabouts exactly yes, are you? Thursday Island. Uh, what's on the name of your island? Thursday Island. Oh, on Thursday Island. You're on Thursday Island. Yeah, on Thursday Island. Some people might assume that being in the Torres Strait on Thursday Island that you might feel a little removed from these sorts of things. But uh, really, uh, it's just a privilege to have you contributing to our conversation today. Is there is, is there much talk about these types of issues in your community? Oh, like like I said, the same principles that need need um, that we apply to our ministering in. In other members within our communities, I think it's one of the same thing. But I also see that one of the things that we're starting to do up here in the islands is that we start to move corporately and as a body, and that churches are starting to work together. And this is why I believe that um, the Muslim communities and, and other religions they tend to shun the, the Christianity uh, what's name message because um, most times we we're trying to. Um, compete with one another yes. as churches, as denominations, instead of we start to complement and start to move as a body. Because we're, yes. you know, we are a many-membered body. The church is is, um, is 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 said to be in the Word of God. Well, Eddie, I want to thank you so much for your contribution, and great to hear from you on Thursday Island. Uh, thanks very much for your input today here on 2020. An interesting point, Elizabeth, just to pick up on uh, before we go to another break, is the idea of a common threat that brings Christian communities together. And I, I resist using the word enemy there because a common enemy it doesn't always uh, you know, go well with a motivation to be able to reach out. But when there's a common threat, churches linking together, linking arms together, and, and uh, the things that seem to make us different 
all of a sudden pale into a little bit of insignificance in relation to the fact that we all stand for Jesus Christ. Oh, absolutely. And I thought that was a really, uh, really important comment that, uh, that Eddie made there. Um, quite often we find, uh, like for me, when I'm researching the persecuted church, um, I find that Christian unity is actually one of the byproducts of persecution. It's like um, part of Christ's sanctifying work on the church. Quite often you see uh, church unity coming through persecution. And I've just got in front of me here, I, I was doing some research a little while back uh, regarding uh, persecution during the Soviet era on the, the Russian church. And there were two Russian leaders, uh, Yakunin and Regelson, who uh, appealed actually to the World Council of Churches for help and were horrified that the World Council of Churches didn't want to help them and didn't want to acknowledge their suffering. And they wrote, uh, they wrote in 1975 that religious persecution in the world ought to become the central theme for Christian ecumenism. They say, it is now our imperative task to restore the whole Christian community all over the world to the spirit of the first Christians who revered the confessors of the faith and that this should melt away our denominational alienation. And that's just so true. We should be able, as Christians now, to look at what's happening in the world with Christian communities all over the world and this should be a grounds for us coming together as one. If, there, if we actually needed grounds, surely this is it. And uh, I, I spoke to a Russian uh, priest once who said to me, he said, I never liked Baptists until I shared a prison cell with one. And it's really, really interesting, you know, that when we start getting involved in the persecuted church, you start to suddenly discover that Christians of all denominations are uh, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and that we, can, we need to be working towards the fulfillment of, of what Christ prayed, you know, the night before he died, that we should be one just as he and the Father are one. And uh, the state of the church in the world today facing the persecution and threat that it's facing, if ever there was a reason why Christians should be coming together, surely this is it. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It is, Neil, with you, our topic of conversation. We're talking about, uh, well, you know, should Christians be reaching out to Muslims with love and the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I guess that has some risks associated with it. We're taking your calls. Talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Wendy in Queensland. Hello, Wendy. Uh, we've lost Wendy. Let's, uh, we'll uh, hear from Eris in Hawthorne in Victoria, I guess. Or uh, Are you in Victoria, Eris? No, Brisbane. You're in Brisbane, Hawthorne in Brisbane. Okay, Eris, yeah, what's your, what are your thoughts on what we're talking about today? Well, that's totally right. I, I totally agree that uh, all the denominations have got all their own rules and regulations and there's only one God, you know, and the Bible is what we go by, you know, God's Word. Yep, so, that's right. Uh, let's hear, uh, yep, sure. Let's uh, hear from, uh, from Elizabeth Kendall. Elizabeth, on what Eris is sharing? Oh yes, well that's right. Christians, we do need to stand together in these things. And you know, and regarding what you were saying uh, before, Neil, about risk, you know, no one is risking their lives quite as much as what Muslim converts are risking their lives. You know, just a few years ago, the first ever Somali national martyr 
uh, was killed in Somalia by Al-Shabaab. He was 25 years old. He'd been a Christian for only five years. And they, they put him before a, like a little kangaroo court in his hometown, accused him of being a traitor to Islam, uh, gave him an opportunity to repent, and when he didn't, they cut his head off. His name was Muhammad. There are going to be, there are going to be Christians in prison with names like Muhammad and Mustafa and Fatima, and they will be martyrs for Jesus Christ who died because they they would not renounce him because they risked their lives by witnessing for him. And uh, I think we need to be a little bit less afraid and realize that the Muhammad that, that we have a chance to talk to just might one day be another martyr for Jesus Christ who leads other Muslims to Christ if we will just take that step of faith ourselves. Eris, uh, in Hawthorne in Brisbane, uh, it is a risky thing, isn't it, to, to think of reaching out to Muslims when there is potential of some sort of backlash? Yeah, but it doesn't worry me. I, I, I witness to Muslims all the time. I spend a bit of time in Fiji. There's a lot of Muslims over there. Yeah. And um, well, I was mixing with the Muslims to find out what they're about, you know. Yeah, well, that's a, that's an interesting uh, concept. Is the idea if you're not sure what to say and how to say it, uh, just start talking and find out. Ask the questions. Is that a, is that a good way to actually interact? Oh yes, yes, yes. You find most of them because of love of Christianity. They need, they want it. You know. That's it. Eris, I want to thank you so much for your input today here on 2020. And uh, let's hear from Karen in Melbourne. Hello, Karen. Welcome along to 2020. Hello. Hi, Karen. What's your input today? Um, I'm on air, am I? Yes, you're on the air. What, what oh, would yes. you like to say? Um, look, um, we definitely should be preaching to the Muslims. It's only the devil blinding their eyes. These false religions, is that it's like the devil blinding their eyes to the true faith, which is obviously Christianity. Um, so we must plant that seed. Um, and that even if it, it doesn't flourish um, and, it, and they don't convert, you still planted that seed and it will mm. always be there. That's right. Uh, let me hear from Elizabeth Kendall. And uh, I know, Elizabeth, I'd like to finish our conversation on a high note like this because uh, we're talking about a spiritual battle, the blinding of eyes. Uh, what are your thoughts on what Karen is sharing? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, scattering the seed of the gospel is what we're, what we're called to do. And I think a lot of people uh, back off because they think you need to be some sort of an expert with special training in, uh, in polemics and apologetics and all this sort of stuff. And it's just not true. You just have to be yourself. You have to be able to articulate uh, why it is you love Jesus Christ, why it is uh, the difference that, that Christ has made in your life. You have to live as a Christian and walk as a Christian amongst Muslims rather than separating yourself from them. And that's a very, very powerful thing. You don't need a a PhD in Islamic studies to witness to Muslims. You just have to be a faithful, a faithful Christian. And uh, well, just in closing, uh, Neil, I'd like to say I'd like to refer back to that article of mine that you're referring to, the the uh, summer under the sun message. I made a reference in the end of that message there to Tertullian's uh, famous line: "The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church." And I said I take issue with with that comment. Uh, because the parable of the sower makes it very clear that the gospel is the seed of the church. And we are called to go out and scatter the gospel. 
And I said, um, coming as I do uh, as a gardener who's got a very large cottage garden in the Dandenong Ranges, I can tell you that no amount of blood and bone and tending to the soil will make your poppies grow if you do not scatter the seed. We must scatter the seed. And I also commented that I really do believe that the blood of the martyrs and the tears of the intercessors and the labourers works very much like the blood and the bone and the irrigation that we put in our soil in that they prepare the soil. They make it fertile for the seed that falls. And uh, I believe that we really need to be uh, praying much, much more. We need the tears of the intercessors. There are martyrs out there dying for Jesus Christ. Most of them actually in the Muslim world are Muslims uh, dying for Muslim converts, that is, who are sharing the faith deep in Arab and Persian lands. And they are, they will be, they are martyrs for Jesus Christ. And we need to be continuously spreading the seed so that they're sacrifice is not in vain um yes we we really do need to be spreading the seed of the gospel well i want to thank karen from melbourne for her input today on 2020 Uh, let me just as we're closing here elizabeth and talking about the blood of martyrs and uh, spreading the seed there is a sense isn't there that uh, christians who take up a challenge and say i know some muslims i might uh, make a friend with those Muslims and try to share my faith. Uh, there is a sense in which there is a risk, as we've pointed out, that it's a sort of a low risk in Australia. Mm. Does that mean this is a better time than ever uh, while we're inspired to be able to reach out and when there is relative safety, uh, this is a good time to be able to talk about the gospel with Muslim people? Oh, absolutely. It's an opportunity not to be missed because I don't think it's going to stay this way. I think the you know, various governments around the country and the, the state government where I am in Victoria are increasingly repressive. The state government uh, in Victoria, you know, we've got a vilification uh, law here that um, has already deemed that criticising Islam is the same as vilifying Muslims. So uh, you know, things can get a little bit tighter yet, and I think this is a perfect opportunity uh, to be to be witnessing to Muslims, I think um, one thing I can really recommend for people who would just like to witness to their Muslim uh, colleagues and neighbours is to read uh, biographies of Muslim converts. There's a brilliant one out at the moment called um, uh, called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi, and it is just brilliant. You, know, you read books like this, and you. They take you beyond all that theological debate and they take you into the flesh and blood and heart and soul of, of the Muslim human being and you get to see some of the challenges they're up against. Just as, um, uh, just as we heard from Afra, our, our first caller, the difficulties that go on uh, in that society and, Elizabeth, and in the heart of the Muslims. We're running out of time very quickly and uh, leading up to news, I just want to thank you for your input today and to mention uh, the Melbourne School of Theology's study of Islam and other faiths. And uh, we could have talked about a lot of things today. In fact, there are a lot of persecution issues. Thousands have lost their lives. But I appreciate your input today on this topic, loving Muslims, reaching them with the gospel. Elizabeth Kendall, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Neil. 
Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.